Welcome to the Independent Idaho Podcast, a production of the Living Independence Network Corporation, or LINK. My name is Jeremy Maxand, and I'm the Executive Director of LINK, as well as the host of the show. For those of you who are new to LINK, we are a regional center for independent living, and our mission is simple, to empower Idahoans with disabilities across the lifespan to live as independently as we want. You can learn more about LINK at our website, www.linkidaho.org. That's L-I-N-C-I-D-A-H-O dot O-R-G. So what's Independent Idaho all about? Well, it's a place to learn about disability issues, people, and community. My hope is that it empowers all of us to be better informed, to get more involved, and to live your best life how you want. The show will drop every other Monday morning to begin with, and we'll see where all this goes. My hope is that we keep the episodes to about an hour. You can listen to the show on Anchor, which is Spotify's podcasting platform, as well as a few others, and we'll list those on the website. A transcribed version will be made available on YouTube, and again, we'll provide a link. I am very pleased that Mr. Mark Leeper, the Executive Director of Disability Action Center Northwest, North Idaho's Center for Independent Living, is joining me for our first episode. He's going to help me set the stage for future conversations about independent living, the philosophy, the movement, and programs. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, we are recording. Mark, I really want to thank you for being the first guest that we record on the Independent Idaho podcast at Link. Uh, it's always a, a real honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Um, you. You know, you have such a great history in this state with independent living and centers for independent living. And I couldn't think of somebody who would be um, uh, more fun to talk with, particularly as I work through all the technical difficulties of setting up uh the podcast for the first for the first episode so thank you for taking a risk doing this with us and spending a little time talking about independent living in idaho happy to be here that's uh lots of fun it's always good to know my age is of some value <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness yeah so why don't we just start out like I, I I know your background a little bit and I know you shared it before, but before we I think talk about the more nuanced philosophy of independent living, it'd be good to give our listeners and uh, readers uh, a, a little bit of a background on you and 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 what you've done, where you've come from, and all that sort of stuff. So why don't we start at the womb and you can tell us uh, everything that's happened since then. Start at the what? I'm sorry, I missed at, the at the womb. Oh, at the womb, the womb of you, as uh, Ed Roberts used to talk about his uh, his iron lung. Um, it's a womb with a view. Oh wow! So uh, yeah, I um, I've been around working with uh, independent living stuff for some time, and my first introduction, you know, I never really thought of myself as a person with a disability. I think a lot of people don't. You know, we just deal with stuff. And uh, I uh, always had this desire, I think, because I'd struggled a lot with anxiety and depression and stuff growing up and um, with all the work of trying to make myself okay, I got interested in working with people. And so that kind of was my approach. And I had no knowledge of this thing called an independent living movement or philosophy uh, at all until I went to work for an organization at that time. It was called Stepping Stones. And its initial director is still a good friend of mine and was uh, actually one of the first ones in the formation of the Association of Programs for Rural Independent Living, um, the longtime uh, rural membership organization representing independent living in the country. Um, 
So I took that job and I started to learn a little bit about things. I had a boss who was really quite good in terms of educating me on other nuanced disability issues, mobility issues. I often use the example for peer connections and peer counseling of a story he told me once. And um, and so with that, I ultimately went to a national conference and uh, and was just amazed when I was in a room with a lot of folks that uh, had various kinds of disabilities, various uh, um, amounts of significant or insignificant impact on their life because of disability and uh, a collective desire to make uh incredible changes in the kind of the fabric of society if you will and in their own lives and uh, certainly in the services and uh, programs that affected them and affect everybody so that was really my big eye opener i think that was 1986 and uh so i kind of took that to heart i i had uh, some great mentors after that that really um cemented in me this sense of social movement of um, a fight of people to have control and power over their own lives and so uh, through that process i realized all the things i dealt with you know as a, a hidden disability i'd spent some time in a in a, a mental health hospital and so on and uh, um, so i had that familiarity but it just really never occurred to me that uh, that that was a shared experience by many other folks and uh and uh it could be a value in connecting with people and um and it has been and some of the people i've connected with over the years it's been pretty astounding so that's you know i kind of started working stepping stones uh the rehab act amendments changed in 1992 uh, pardon me 19 uh yeah 1992 and um and centers became direct funded and had a new definition that included the word non-residential. And that meant that organization that had formed some small little uh, institutional settings for those with the most significant disabilities that before that had been in state institutions, um, the um, they um, could no longer have the grant because they were clearly residential. Um, so, um, that's when we started Disability Action Center, and uh, I've been the executive director of that since we started it. So that's a little bit of my history. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Um, your your comment about like your personal struggles trying to you know uh, understand your role and place in in the disability movement and, and world essentially that really resonates with me. You know, um, growing up in a in a small island community in southeast alaska and and uh any you know ending up in using a manual wheelchair when i was about 15 you know you do and i guess it's different for everybody right depending on how old you are what 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 your disability is like what what size of community you live in what type of resources are available um there weren't a lot of there weren't centers for independent living in, in my community and there certainly weren't nonprofit organizations that i knew about that were you know, working on on issues like making the community more accessible or, or things like that. But you, I do remember. You know, you do. You kind of want to be normal, right? You want to you want to live a normal life, and I and I I hesitate to even use that word normal. But but it took a long time for me to even realize that there was a whole other world out there of people working on these issues. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, the, the process, the evolution that you go through uh, as, as a person with any kind of disability, I think is it's interesting because it's not a straight line and it's different for everybody, everybody. Um, so yeah. I just, that really resonated with me because it was, you know, I had a similar, not struggle, but a similar experience, not quite knowing where I fit in or, or what, you know, what, those sorts of things. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, particularly, I, I wonder if there's a difference. I don't I have no idea. I've never seen any studies. But, you know, as young men, we're presented with stereotypes and, you know, images and ways we think we're supposed to think. Um, and that really are not in sync with that sense of uh reality which is when we come up with something as a human kind of condition we tend to deal with it you know and um 
but before that, you know, I mean, it's it's how many young men thinking, oh, my God, if I ever had to use a wheelchair, I'd rather not be here. You know, I mean, that's the attitude that folks have. And of course, that's so common. But the reality is, is every one of us, once that happens, if, oh, no, I think I'd just soon live. Thanks. And so, you know, it's kind of an interesting process, I think. And that's our, one of our big challenges is how do you connect with people to get them past that point of how should I feel and to just feel, you know, just be. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I think that whole journey um, is there's just a whole lot of uh, of luck and, and uh, just things that you really don't predict. And hopefully that's what we're around to do, you know, as the centers and so on, is we can help with some of those predictions um, and speed that process because it's uh, the self-discovery can sometimes be a little bumpy. <laughs> yeah, to say to say the least. Um, so you mentioned that things were changing in the early '90s, um, and there's of course, you know, we're talking. We we we've talked about centers. We've mentioned this centers for independent living. We've mentioned independent living, but for those just kind of tuning in and maybe not really even knowing what that concept or philosophy or movement or program is, independent living. Um, you know, we're really talking about, it's really simple. I mean, we're just talking about people, no matter who you are, but we're, we're focused kind of on folks with disabilities along, you know, anywhere along the lifespan and being able to live whatever life you choose like anybody else. Now that doesn't mean that you're not going to have barriers or problems or troubles, or you're going to make lousy decisions or something might happen to you, but, but just to have the opportunity and the resources like everybody else to, to live the life of our choosing. And, and oftentimes, and and particularly historically that, that process, that journey, that movement has been to get people out of institutions and institutional settings and into the community, literally physically into the community, living, you know, in an apartment or a house or with roommates or friends or family or on your own, um, whatever you want. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about or feel comfortable talking about, um, just in broad strokes, kind of the the history, um, particularly kind of the post, you know, World War II, Vietnam, and then into the civil rights era and up through the 80s and 90s, and finally, the you know, the eight, passage of the ADA, um, what that looked like for people before we gained some of the, the civil rights that we have today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a it's fascinating and it's uh it's an interesting topic because uh the Smithsonian actually has a whole presentation. There's um uh pictures, slides, all sorts of stuff on the history of disability in this country. And I often do uh uh talks on some of that. And obviously I, I'm glad to say I wasn't there in the very early beginnings, though some look at me and think I was. Um but uh <laughs> In reality, uh, I wasn't. Uh, but you you look at some of the things that have transpired for people with a disability over time, and 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 it's it's amazing. Now you look at it and you think of the changes. But you're right. I mean, there really wasn't some of the legislative protection. Vocational rehabilitation started pretty early. Uh, there were some protections that people fought for. Different disability groups fought for some protections and some rights and some opportunities. Uh, but there really wasn't a large scale kind of um, connection of of programs and so on to serve everybody for some time. And some of the treatment that people faced was was pretty darn bad. Just some of the things that was embedded in society. I still recall a friend of mine, uh, his dad was a doctor um, and his mother talked, you know, pretty frankly about the history of where she was at in Missouri of disability when she, you know, based on what I, I was doing and, and she remembered the institution, she said, where the idiots lived at uh, her terminology. But one of the guys that was in charge was just had epilepsy or something. So he was really pretty high functioning. So he did a lot of this stuff kind of took charge of a lot of the things there. And that's, you know, that was their perception of how disability was that, you know, you went to an institution and those that were more able to handle with 
things kind of took charge and and that was the choice she had and uh you know there was forced sterilization um obviously as with so many things nazi germany uh really fine-tuned it all uh, with genocide and so on of people with uh, a disability to start with and then uh, before they moved on to uh, religious groups and so on um so i mean there's a there's a pretty nasty history um and that comes into this country it's uh, eugenics has colored some of our past um but through that all you know we started to see changes and so you had uh the invention of sulfa drugs so people were surviving much more significant injuries through world war ii mm -hmm. uh the first world war but even the first world war uh, a lot of people with blindness with uh with other sensory disabilities the hearing loss um uh, orthopedic injuries as well and that just kind of continued and um so we come into that kind of you know the 60s and all this challenge of the status quo and and young people wanting changes and and questioning the establishment well within that obviously then would be people with a disability because above all things were people and we experience the same things that all other people do uh with some added wrinkles thrown in in this case you know somebody like ed roberts uh, who's been called the father of independent living, but he was not the only one, but he was very notable down in Berkeley, California. And basically these folks, they wanted to go to school. They lived in institutions. They wanted to be able to have personal assistance uh, and certain level of accessibility to be able to go to school and better themselves, uh, get jobs. Uh, Ed was turned down for rehabilitation services by California and then ran that department later uh, in the state. Um, and so that kind of was indicative of the kind of change that was happening throughout the country in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and so finally, because of that advocacy, and, and it happened in a lot of urban areas at the time, uh, Houston was active, Lex Frieden was there, Bonnie Day up in uh, Boston, and Marka Bristow in uh, Chicago. These are all people that were active in the disability rights and disability uh, access services early on. Um, they all got together along with Ed, and they got that passage of legislation in seven, 1978 to uh, create these centers for independent living. Um, and so that was kind of the first time where there began to be some attention to what they called independent living services, um, which weren't necessarily all that independent living. They were still, you know, very much couched in the traditional service system and often ran through vocational systems, uh, boards of directors. Um, first of all, the states had first right of refusal on the first monies that were available. And then uh, organizations that got the funds, uh, their boards had to be a majority of people with disabilities or representatives or family members. And as I always used to talk to folks, who was the person probably the least helpful a lot of times, particularly if something was dangerous and you might fail in your growth to independence? Um, how many people raise your hand if you say your parents <laughs> were least helpful? They're just, no, don't do that. It's dangerous. You know, and that's not always true. That's obviously a generalization. But the other thing is who's more interested in maintaining the status quo than somebody that's currently working in the system as a representative. Um, so those that was kind of an imperfect start, but still it was the seed that kind of got things rolling. Um, and then from that, you know, we had the passage of Section 504 and the 504 sit in. And so a whole lot of things where folks with disabilities all of a sudden kind of started making noise like they should have control over services and then started uh, making some significant noise. Not only should they control their services, but they should have a major direct impact on public policy and uh, speeding up the process, defining the process, and so on. So it became really, really heady stuff. Um, that movie Crip Camp, of course, came out to talk about some of the things that were starting to happen there, that people getting together. And, you know, we saw a lot of that at that time. It wasn't just people with a disability, but it was really notable that people with a disability um, became part of it and took control. I kind of come down more and more as I've gone over time. I try to simplify things. Um, number one, I mean, you get into all sorts of discussions. The bottom line is nobody lives independently. So independent living is right. a misnomer. 
It's what we've always used. Um, the critical things is is we choose our interdependence. So we're all interdependent on other folks, on systems, and so on and so forth. So the critical thing I think comes down to right now is power and community. So we want power over our lives, the power to choose, the power to establish our own interdependence, and the power to access our communities the same as everybody else. So it's all about power. And um, that was really at a time we started to see people exercising that power. I remember sitting in a national conference. I went to a session, and it was on transportation, and a big push still to make transportation accessible. And I guess the 504 um, guidelines and regulations had been printed by that time, but the progress was really slow. And I remember a person, the power wheelchair user out in this audience. And, you know, I was a young guy. I was kind of wowed by these top officials, uh, presidential appointees, the Department of Transportation, and, you know, up there in their suits and so on. And here's this guy in a wheelchair in the middle of a room saying, look, it's not acceptable. And the guy starts to answer and he's raising his voice. Don't give me that nonsense anymore. You know, that's bull and so on. And that was heady stuff. All of a sudden, thinking, wait a minute, these suits are up there and they're, you know, they've got this aura of officialdom, but that's not where the power is at in this room. And, uh, and it wasn't. And we saw ultimately the result of that. And we, we're still seeing it with current Secretary Pete Buttigieg and some of the attention that he's placing on accessibility and public transportation. Um, and we see him in pictures with uh, with friends of ours that uh, are in the disability rights movement, and uh, and he's listening. And why? Because we have power. And so that was pretty cool stuff. And that's kind of where we came to when we started having these centers that uh, that had the opportunity to be strong grassroots advocacy uh, organizations that took on something differently that really accentuated that growth of, of individual power. Um, and they're fraught with all sorts of potential pitfalls as well. But that's, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> we have a right to our pitfalls. Uh, that's right. You know, you can say <laughs> I, I appreciate you bringing up Crip Camp. What a fantastic uh, f- film. Like if, if, if you're listening to this and you have not, you have not had a chance to uh, consume Crip Camp in one way or another. Do so. It is it is a it is an absolutely fantastic um, accounting of the rise uh, of the disability rights movement um, in in the '60s and into the '70s and into today. Um, absolutely incredible, uh, incredible film. And 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 just to pause for a second on on that period of time during the civil rights movement in the 60s obviously there was um y- you know there was the what we know is the civil rights movement um with regard to uh discrimination against african americans um there was the lgbtq plus community um with Stonewall, you had, um, you know, the women, women's rights movement. You mentioned, uh, some of the activists that were involved with that. Um, but I, I was, I've always been fascinated by the, you know, these are seemingly independent movements and groups of people that you, you know, arguably may not have a lot in common with one another, but when you scratch the surface and you, you really learn about the stories and the history of, of these groups and how interconnected the word that you use interconnected they were and and are um it's just incredible mm-hmm. the one story that uh comes to mind uh was the f- sit in of the federal building in the late 70s and mm-hmm. and how that was the longest occupation of a federal building in in US history and and the folks who occupied that that building who had pretty significant disabilities. Um, so imagine, you know, being without your supports, without your, maybe your durable medical equipment, your, your, you know, the stuff that you use to live a comfortable, you know, healthy life, you take those away and occupy a federal building, um, how difficult that could be. But what, what was also interesting was 
how supported those individuals were by uh, by other groups like the Black Panthers, who would show up with food and supplies and and how you know there was there's communication happening through asl um to let people on the ground know what's happening in the building so that the police don't know things like things like that are just the nuance of, of that history is just incredible um and powerful um to pull yeah. back and look look at what happened in the united states during that time um, across all groups of people um and that kind of led us to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, and that was a, that was a really big deal. I remember, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, became disabled, I guess, um, right around the passage of that act. Um, and, and in our community, we had, you know, they had just built a bunch of new public buildings and schools and, and different things, um, in the late eighties. And those, those were facilities built using federal dollars. So even before the ADA passed, there were federal laws that um, impacted how those buildings were designed and what kind of access they had. Mm -hmm. um, but talk a little bit about, we've talked about centers and we both, we both run a center. I run Link in, in Southwest Idaho. You run Disability Action Center Northwest up in North, North Idaho. Um, talk a little bit a bit more about really what these centers are about and 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 how they are supposed to promote and support and and foster independent live like real independent living. Um, not you know we're we're not here to do things for people. We're here to empower people to do things for themselves. And I think the centers have such a a, a deep and rich history of promoting that philosophy through programs. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what's, what does that look like? How has that evolved over time? Well, that's an interesting question. And it's, uh, some of it, uh, I, I look at the centers and, and understand I'm kind of a purist. Um, I really believe in this sense of people supporting each other, um, to, you know, take power over their own lives. Um, but that it's always their lives. Um, I, I don't believe in making somebody else responsible for my life um, or um, anything like that. You know, it's, it's about that connection. So it's always my responsibility. So when I'm working with folks, I believe it's their responsibility to follow through and they have every right not to. So again, power exists to move forward. Power exists to maintain your own status quo if you want. Um, so Centers, as I've looked at it, were always a tool for that. I, I looked at centers, um, and I think there's a lot of validity in this. I looked at centers as a tool of people with a disability in the community with, with certain things that they ought to be doing. And one thing is they do is they connect with individuals. They connect with individuals with any kind of disability to help those folks um, gain power over their own lives to realize, uh, number one, what's my life like? What do I want my life like? And then how, what kind of supports, what kind of tools do I need to get where I want to go? And how can I learn those? Well, the best way to learn them is connect with a peer. And that peer maybe has access to the resources of a center to be able to research, find out, and then working together, they can find the tools that individual can use to get where they're wanting to go. And if they get those tools and those tools don't work and it turns out that goal isn't achievable, that's entirely something that they decide. And, you know, ultimately they have the shot at it. And we all do that in our lives. That's just, everybody does that. Uh, people go out and they decide they're going to be a pilot and find out that, you know, taking off and landing is just a little bit more than I bargained for. I don't think I want to be a pilot anymore, you know? That doesn't mean they're a bad person or they're incapable. They just made a change in their life. So that's that individual connection. The other part that I always thought was uh, exceptionally important, still is exceptionally important, um, but I see I'm fearful that it maybe loses a little bit of um, momentum over time, is that systems advocacy. That as long as systemic barriers exist, then the, the amount of effort we have to put forth and the tools we have to gain to to you know realize our rights and everything is far greater than it needs to be. When those systems change, systems are 
uh, made more accessible, more usable, then more and more folks um, are successful in getting where they want to go, having power over their own lives again, uh, and having the ability to impact their communities, having power within their communities, the same as everybody else. So within that context, I think centers came along. There were some core services, as I mentioned before, you know, boards of directors weren't always a majority of people with a significant disability. Um, but that evolved. We continued to push, and that's that systemic advocacy to say, this is our service system. Um, so we want to be able to control it. So folks with disabilities want to control it. We want to be cross-disability. We don't want money going to just a single disability group because single disability groups tend to get money in traditional service systems. We want this to be different. We want to be able to connect. We want to challenge each other. We want to support each other. And we want to take on communities. And we can work to develop services um, where they don't exist. And we can advocate to say when services do exist, they have to serve everybody. Um, And in that process, I've always felt it very strongly. uh, You talked about these other movements. Um, I felt very strongly that it's intersectional, that we do work with other movements. When there's an issue that faces uh, another group, then I really want to see our center out front and center saying, hey, we support you. Um, I've had staff members that were out on the street and support holding signs supporting a Mexican restaurant that was targeted by the Aryan nations up in the panhandle at one time. And I applauded them for it. You know, they thought maybe they they weren't supposed to be there. And I said, heck no, recruit some more folks to be there. And, uh, you know, I sat on the, the Idaho Human Rights Commission, um, uh, the Latah County Human Rights Task Force. We were heavily involved in that, doing two things, supporting groups and their access, but also helping people realize that disability was not a charity issue, that it was also a human rights issue, a human relations issue, because that's our history tended to be charity. So I thought that was really another really important piece for centers. Um the danger point, you know, centers were defined. We have four core services. We now have five, uh, but four core services initially, which was information referral. That's great. Information is power. Anytime you have the information and some support and knowing how to, how to use that information, where do you go with it? Then you have power. You've gained some power over something. Next was peer counseling. And that's really kind of the most, most unique thing we had is we're connecting peers with each other, whether it's learning some basic physical thing, talking about how to deal with pressure sores. If you're a chair user and you're having to spend more time in your chair than you, you ought to or you want to, and so on and so forth, or whether it's somebody with a, um, uh, an intellectual disability that you know wants to know how do you make friends, whatever. That sense of connecting with peers to say, what do we do? And sometimes just say, you know, it's okay to make waves. That talking to somebody else in a similar situation, that's powerful. Then advocacy, of course, self-advocacy. How do you how do you advocate? How do you get your rights? How do you change systems to make sure that everybody can get their rights? And then finally, the independent living skills training, which I've always said is kind of an amalgamation of everything Mm -hmm. because it's all an independent living skill. Self-advocacy is an independent living skill. You know, connecting with peers, finding peers, that's kind of an independent living skill. And so you have all of those things. Then we had transition services added, which you talked about uh, people getting out of institutions and such. Well, you know, it's that's kind of an outgrowth of those services. It's something we always did. They just decided to call it a service. And so we still do that service and help with youth transition. But we kind of always did that um, with implementation of those other services. So that was, you know, kind of the history of centers that we've gone through that. But what happened early on with centers, and, and this was the danger part, is centers were often funded through traditional systems when they first started. Uh, the states got the money and the states funneled the money through to centers. Well, when they funneled that money through, who did they funnel it through? Well, they funneled it through the traditional service providers, the vocational rehabilitation folks. And at that time, um, that's changed. I'm, I'm going to kind of defend them a little bit moving forward. But at that time, that was a pretty traditional system. You prescribed a fix for somebody. You tried to find the services where a person could gain as much ability as they could in spite of their disability uh, so that they could become marginally employable or something or whatever. And so that system controlled the money. And so then they started asking for responses based on what they understood of services. And that was those services should be kind of prescriptive, kind of really definable. And I tend to look at IL as not being so prescriptive. 
it's very fluid and it really depends on who you're talking to and the situation you're in. And so some of those things didn't mesh. Because of that system, a lot of those early centers, not a lot, but certainly some, were kind of established as kind of performance-based programs where you provide this many units of service and we'll give you your money. And so that really kind of created a service system that was kind of like service systems before. And so the consumer control, the, the, the ownership of people with disabilities uh, wasn't as evident. Other centers really kind of took on that sense of, wait a minute, no, we're here to rattle cages, dang it. And <laughs> we're not doing things the way they've been done before. Uh, we're in control and here's what's going to happen and so on and so forth. So I think that's the that's the big tug and push and pull that we've got going now and that maybe we always have had is how can we continue to have this energy you know, of people with disabilities, various kinds of disabilities, connecting and doing something different moving forward on that sense of, of human connection rather than counting services. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of a little bit of the evolution as I've seen it. And obviously, my bias is probably coming through that I think we're a, we're a human rights movement. I think we need to continue to kind of stay pure to connecting on issues that we have unique experiences on and changing systems so that they are uh, flexible and that they serve uh, people regardless of whether they have a disability or not, or whether they're a member of another marginalized group, that there's that sense that uh, there's opportunity for everybody. And that's what we've always fought for. Uh, if we get sidetracked into too much other, you know, um, putting this peg into this hole and so on and so forth, then I think we lose a little bit of that. I love all of that. I love the, you know, the, the distinction between, you know, peer networking and self-advocacy and systems advocacy, but I love how you draw that into, well, you know, skills training is essentially all of that. How do you do all of that? And I, I was on a, you know, I had the pleasure of staffing the front desk, I don't know, a month or two ago, uh, co covering somebody who was out and, and, uh, answered, happened to answer the phone. And it was, it was, it was somebody looking for information referral and some self-advocacy support. And they were pretty upset and, uh, had to do with, um, some discrimination and some problems happening with the healthcare system. And so, you know, we got talking and, and I thought, you know, Hey, let's, you need to this i told this person you need we need to have a conversation with one of one of our um board members who's also an advocate dana who we'll have on the podcast and um who knows a lot about navigating healthcare systems and being a, an advocate for yourself but also pushing the needle moving the needle on 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 systemic issues and and so I was able to get her and uh, this consumer and Dana and myself on the phone uh, last week just to just to brainstorm what we could do from a systems perspective to get the healthcare systems to be more responsive to folks who have more complex medical needs and disabilities and, and so forth. Things we hear all the time, people complaining about mm -hmm. being being pinballed around in a in a healthcare system that you could literally spend all day trying to, you know, talk to the right person, make the right call, fig you know, figure out the answer to a question. And I I I'm just thinking back to that 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 Zoom meeting and how neat it was to to listen to Dana and this consumer talk because Dana was being a peer in giving advice, really, you know, advice about like, this happened to me, you should try this. Uh, but then also this kind of higher level conversation about like what's happening with the healthcare system and how can we impact that? And mm -hmm. it, it's just the perfect meshing of, uh, it's just a perfect example of how all of these things mesh together and how they work together to empower people to to be more effective at getting the life they want and, and even changing the system so that the, the system meets the needs of more people. Um, I love that about this work, uh, that you get to operate at that high systemic level, but at the end of the day, you're really, you're working with individual people and in individual circumstances to, to make life better for them. Um, and if it, it also makes me think about the, 
you know, we just touched on it a little bit, but I want to, I want to dig into it a little bit more, but this idea of the dignity of risk is such a profound idea. It's so simple, yet it's so profound um, that whenever you talk to anyone about it who's never heard of it, particularly somebody who does not have a disability, it's kind of a, an aha moment where it's, you know, alluding to what you said before, but talk a little bit about this dignity of risk and what, what does this mean and why is it so important um, on so many different levels to, you know, to our, our lived experience in our lives and our independence? Sure. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's an exceptionally good point because one of the inherent things in being human is that you're going to fail. And of course, we all see the things of, you know, is failure a bad thing, a good thing? Well, you know, it's the, the healthy thing is to say, well, I failed. I knew I was going to fail. And so what can I learn from that? But um, historically, if you have a disability, um, if you fail, it's somebody else's fault. And and it shouldn't have happened. And how do you uh, then keep somebody from being blamed for your failure? Well, they just don't let you do anything, <laughs> you know. And uh, so then that you you lose freedom. So without that ability to take a risk and that ability to fail, then you're not free. And as I recollect, you know, freedom was supposed to be something that's kind of important in this country and in, in, in a lot of uh, democratic uh, countries and so on. This sense of freedom is, is something we rely on. So how can you take away somebody's freedom and, and call it a good thing? So, I mean, obviously, we, we have to take a risk. We have to be able to take a risk. I remember a story. We, uh, I was, I've always been kind of a thorn in the side of some folks, you know, and I kind of feel bad looking back in some regards. Shocking. I think maybe I was really a pest. But one of the people, uh, uh, somebody in a, a suit in a state agency said to me one time, he says, so what you're telling me is somebody can make a choice. So you're saying a blind person can go fly a plane. And I said, well, sure. A blind person can go and check in like anybody else with a system that has to do with flying planes. And what's that system going to do? Is that system going to let them just get in and fly a plane? Of course not. They're not going to let me get in there and fly a plane either. I have to go through the training. If I'm not successful at the training, do I fly a plane? Hell no, because that system is set up so that people that fly planes have to learn how to fly a plane. So why are you artificially, on your, from your rehab perspective, saying this person can't go try that? Uh, they have every right to do that, and they're not going to probably do it. Maybe they're going to have a co-pilot that's going to say, this is really cool. Let's go both, both go do that. And they're actually going to, in a sense, fly a plane. You don't know. So stay the hell out of it because it's not your business, uh, was basically what I said. And, you know, it was ultimately... That's what they kind of had to go with because they didn't have a, a leg to stand on. But it, it happens. I mean, stuff, bad stuff happens. Another example was in the city of Moscow years ago. There was a young woman with an intellectual disability uh, living with another fellow. And a friend of this other fellow's had got out of prison, um, came and was visiting them. Well, there was ultimately uh, uh, the it prevailed in court that the young woman was raped by this fellow. And there was a letter to the uh, opinion piece in the paper about this person and how could the state have allowed this kind of a situation to happen where this person was victimized. And we immediately got on the phone with that and, and wrote letters to what are they talking about? This was a horrible situation that happened to an innocent person that could have happened to somebody with or without a disability. The issue was the crime, not whether the state was responsible. Was the state supposed to be in there all the time seeing who was in the home? Is the state supposed to go in and say, what do they watch on TV? What are they having for dinner? I mean, it's absurd. And yet that was the immediate knee-jerk reaction for folks was this person shouldn't have been allowed to take a risk, obviously living on their own. Something bad happened. Well, bad things happen to everybody. And if we start saying, well, yeah, they can happen to everybody except somebody with a disability, then we're in essence saying that, well, we're going to imprison people with disabilities for their own good, for their own safety. And if there's anything that's counter to what we uh, believe in, I don't know what it'd be. <laughs> well, and it, it, you know, the flip side applies too. good things happen to people. And if you're yeah. sheltered and institutionalized and, and, you know, protected, um, 
in that in that way, then you also lose opportunities to be happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to contribute. I mean, it's just it's it's not like we're just, you know, dead weights around society just one way or another. When folks get out and they have an opportunity, I remember a, a blind guy. Um, oh, gosh, I'm missing his name here at the moment uh, in my poor old brain. But he runs, runs a company, ran a company down in San Diego, and he was an idea guy. He'd lost his sight, um, but he was always thinking, and he became an entrepreneur. Uh, he told the story of how he was um, talking to somebody about these double-wide homes, you know, that go down the, the road and then get to put together. Put together, And he said, how do you put those two halves together? And uh, somebody said, well, just generally we lag bolt them. And then they both, he says, huh. And he got thinking about it. He said, that'd be kind of cool if there was some sort of a clamp. So he actually hired an engineer and he said, can you create a clamp that works on this? And they ended up coming up with this thing they called a marriage clamp. And he sold it uh, the plans for about 700,000 bucks. <laughs> you know, so this guy's out there. If he'd been kept from doing any of this stuff, then whole industries, you know, wouldn't have got some stuff. And plus he wouldn't have made a bunch of money and paid a bunch of taxes. And so it's, yeah, it's kind of absurd, but you know, it's based on stereotypes. It's based on assumptions people have and largely, you know, kind of grounded in that whole charity model that people with a disability, um, they lose more than just some aspect of their um, average human functioning, if you will. Um, so that as you, as you lose the loose use of a limb, I suppose maybe it's like a rating system. You know, compensation will give you a certain certain amount of money, and society takes away all of your ability to choose. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's you know when you when you think of it from a uh, you know from a employer's perspective, for example, you sure you might have to make an accommodation to you know, ensure that a, a person who you hire with a disability can do that job, or maybe there's a modification to the job, but the tenacity and the adaptability and the flexibility and all the characteristics that it takes to get up every day and to move through a society that was not designed or built or or mm-hmm. put together for you to be successful, for you, heck, for you to even get to the store or get transportation or do anything, really. I mean, it's better today, obviously, mm-hmm. than it was in the past, but but those are qualities that you would think the the free market and industry would welcome. They're the they are they're mm-hmm. the characteristics of disruptors. They're they are the characteristics of of people who um have produced all sorts of interesting and valuable things in in society, and so I think mm-hmm. you, just overcoming that that those stereotypes and looking to what somebody with a disability, uh, whether you're deaf or blind or have an intellectual disability or a mobility disability or whatever, what you bring to the table is is significant. It's huge, and it's not you know we we haven't quite got to the point where we're looking through that lens. And adjusting our focus to see, you know, see all the great things that could come from someone's experience trying to navigate the world that way. And I think we miss, you know, a lot of businesses miss out and a lot of obviously potential employees miss out. Um, And yeah, it's a real problem. Um, What? Yeah. Go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and one of the sad things that happens when we don't address that and take away those those assumptions and stereotypes and actually start treating people as people, um, we lose the ability to challenge people's humanity. So um, when there's some characteristic, something that's causing unequal treatment, then that skews everything. We should always be able to challenge every human being in terms of, you know, what kind of a person are they? When you have these other things that are coming into it, you're making judgments based on those characteristics. Um, and sometimes the people themselves are making decisions based on that. Then you lose that opportunity to develop the best people that you can have or have the best outcomes in an employment situation that you can have. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting thing. I think there's all sorts of because you know we obviously not everybody with a disability is going to be a great person. They're not going to be a great fit for a job. You're going to have folks with a disability who are 
you know, lazy louts. Just Are you like talking about else. me, Mark? And then you're going to have, well, you know, I didn't name names, but uh, I mean, you're going to have folks that are are wonderful people and they're, you know, but they're, the bottom line is they're folks. When you get rid of these other assumptions, then you start dealing with people based on what are they doing at the time, you know, and uh, so that, which is all good. So anyway. You know, there's one, one other thing you mentioned, um, and then I want to talk just for a minute about the future, but uh, w- one thing you mentioned was how centers are are a cr- they're cross disability organizations. So, um, and if if you're new to that term, I mean, it essentially means that we, as, as centers for independent living, welcome, support, empower our community. It includes all sorts of folks with all sorts of disabilities. And one one thing that I've really really enjoyed, and I've enjoyed it just experiencing it, but I've also um, seen the the power of it is is when you get a group of people together who have different disabilities, somebody who's blind, somebody who's deaf, somebody with an intellectual disability, down the list, um, mental health issues, just down the list, you it's so interesting when when to see uh, everyone, work together and supporting each other and 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 advocating for other people with disabilities who who may not have a disability like you have. So it's really interesting to to see folks in wheelchairs, you know, being out and loud and proud and kind of like advocating for our peers who uh, you know, can't see what's on the Zoom meeting. And so we need to make sure that people are announcing and, and describing or, um, you know, somebody who may be deaf or hard of hearing and, um, you know, advocating for somebody who's in a wheelchair uh, to get better access to a program or a service. And I just, I find it, it's just exhilarating kind of when you find that group of peers who are doing that kind of actual cross-disability work and how powerful it is and kind of confusing for people sometimes because it's like, well, you're, you know, you can't see. Why are you worried about the person who's using a wheelchair? Um, it, it's kind of interesting and can actually be comical in some instances, but it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And I think it's the one mm-hmm. thing that makes the centers uh, and the movement so, so great is that is that connection across disabilities because at the end of the day it's not actually about the disability it's about the humanity and about uh what you mm-hmm. talked about the human right and the civil right and and how mm-hmm. other people interact with us and treat us and how the world is built uh to support or uh prevent us from um being successful in whatever mm-hmm. way we define success because uh, success looks a lot different um you know for each individual um, well, and sometimes it's not an individual. It's, it's for that person. It's it's how they fit into their family. It's how they fit into their their culture. Um, so it, you know, it's just so adjustable. And and I think more and more, I, I think about that from the standpoint of everybody. It's it's a case of how do you um, how do you develop that collective. And in such a way that you know, collective being a group of people in such a way that that group um, not only recognize, but recognizes, but celebrates those differences that each individual has without seeing them as a reason to drive a wedge. Um, and I often think about this from the we have different disability groups that have had various successes. Um, if we look at funding streams, we have some groups that have a lot of money going into service systems. We have other groups that have very little. Uh, we have our cross-disability groups that comparatively have very, very little. Um, but you have like in Idaho, uh, folks with traumatic brain injury, there's very little funding that's available specifically for that group. But when you start thinking about it all as we're all in this together and all a part of something, and we'll celebrate and recognize the differences, but in such a way that we're still collectively working to make sure that everybody has that opportunity within, you know, what they want, then that's a pretty powerful thing. And it crosses over. It's not just a disability thing. It crosses over to everybody. I, I'm always frustrated. I hear people talk about, you know, we don't get along with Southern Idaho, so we should have North Idaho become its own state. 
Eastern Washington should separate from Western Washington, Eastern Oregon. And so then I always carry forward, yeah, you're right. And those folks in Spokane, Washington don't understand people in Boise. So they should never talk together. That great state that they're going to create, they can't be together. So we have to get it down to let's just have Coeur d'Alene. Well, but Coeur d'Alene, North Coeur d'Alene, they don't get along very well with the folks in South Coeur d'Alene. So maybe we're just going to have those separate. And pretty soon you're down to a household, but then family members fight and disagree. So pretty soon you just have single people nations. I mean, in essence, that's what it boils down to. At some point, you have to make a decision that you're all in this together. And so you work at finding ways that achieve a positive goal for everybody. And I think that happens when you celebrate everybody's opportunity. Now, if somebody's acting like a jerk, then, you know, that's systems are set up that they don't progress quite as well as somebody that's not, you know. But the bottom line is that you still don't have those artificial barriers, those groupings who are thinking, well, it has to go down to this group. Well, no, it has to go down to this group. So I love the way that we as a movement said, hey, it's not all about just those with mobility uh, barriers. It's not all about those with just a sensory disability. Uh, And to be honest, in the independent living movement, it's not very long ago that I heard those conversations. Well, we don't serve people with a developmental disability. There's service systems that serve those people, mm-hmm. <laughs> those people, right? Mm-hmm. And I heard that from independent living folks, center directors. And we've come so far in terms of recognizing that it's everybody, that whether you have vision loss or are blind or hearing loss or are deaf or have an intellectual disability or disability from a traumatic brain injury and all of the things that that can affect or whether a spinal cord injury or some other neurological thing, it doesn't matter. You're facing some barriers that sometimes have some commonalities and you gain a lot of power when you connect with each other to talk about possibilities and methodologies uh, and also talk about when is something really just something limitation everybody faces, like transportation. Yeah. We can talk about lack of accessible transportation, but in reality, how many folks have adequate transportation? Nobody. So the bottom line is what we want is access to at least the same lousy level of transportation everybody <laughs> has. So we should all work together to say, let's all get more public transportation. And by the way, it needs to be accessible. You know, when we have that approach, we've got a whole lot more allies and we're making a systemic change that's going to sustain. Uh, so that's what that is cool. And when you think about that cross disability piece and that power of of working with these various groups that many of which have had a lot of success individually. But um, society isn't all about individuals, despite what we may hear some days. <laughs> Well, okay, we've got a few minutes before we wrap this up, and I, I want to just I want to want you to pull out your crystal ball and uh, take a look into the future. And where do you, where is all this going? Where where are centers going? Where is the movement going? It's kind of a, a big question, and it could take an entire episode, I'm sure. But would love <laughs> just you know you you've been in this for for a hot minute, and I'm wondering. Based on what you've seen and experienced, where where do you think we're going? Are we headed in in a good direction? Um, are there things we need to be mindful about? What what's on your mind when it comes to independent living, uh, particularly in the state of Idaho? This is a that's a really really loaded question to ask a guy that uh, deals with depression and anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, especially in uh, especially in this day and age. No, I mean, to be honest, I'm really, um, I really feel pretty positive when I get a chance to talk to people and kind of dive in in a little depth about um, interdependent living and, um, and what we're fighting for and, and uh, both, you know, with people with disabilities and other, other intersections, uh, uh, members of the Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color, uh, groups, uh, uh, indigenous folks, and and so on, uh, uh, women, uh, gender issues, LGBTQ plus communities, and so on, um, that when you really start talking about it, I think people kind of start to get it and understand. Our biggest challenge as a movement is that we have got to avoid 
getting pigeonholed into becoming community rehab programs that provide services only. Our power is in advocacy. Our power is in community change and peer connection to challenge each other individually so that we can challenge our communities and our society to do a better job of serving everybody and not just us, but everybody, because it all you know, has a ripple effect. So I think people, when you start talking to them, they get that. Uh, it's hard because we face funding issues and we start getting driven by money. Um, you know, you have things like mission creep where, you know, you get this money. Well, we can go and enter into this contract and perform this service. Well, who is that service performed on behalf of and with what kind of a philosoph philosophical approach? Is it, you know, building widgets for somebody else uh, according to their criteria or is it building empowerment? according to our philosophy. If it's the latter, then it's worth doing. If it's the former, uh, it's a slippery slope. So my fear is that I see entities driven by money and those opportunities. There's been a lot of money that goes into traditional systems. Traditional systems have gotten gotten more untraditional, but they still, you know, kind of have those things they have to deal with that are a little bit different um, and can sometimes start to become kind of compartmentalized. Uh, I think we have to avoid that. We have to be mindful of that and say, let's continue to operate within that sense that we're about people having choice. And that choice includes choosing whether to talk to us or not, you know? And so it's, it's, uh, I, I think, I think folks are starting to get, it. I, I hear people in the movement talking about uh, avoiding those kinds of things. I'm just hoping that we're able to do um, some of the education and uh, have some of the impact nationally that we need to have so that this movement isn't co-opted. Because I think it has been co-opted to some degree. Um, our terminology has been adopted by some others. And just because somebody calls somebody a consumer doesn't mean they have that sense of uh, free adoption of, of Ralph Nader style, style consumerism, where the consumer has power and choice mm -hmm. and so on. So it's, it's you can use the terminology. It doesn't necessarily mean you're in charge. Um, so being aware of that, I think I hear that, though, when I'm talking to new center directors, um, they're fearful of the money stream. But at the same time, they kind of say, well, yeah, that resonates. So that does make sense. We should be all about that, uh, connecting with each other and challenging society to be there for us and everybody else in the same way. So I think there's good hope in that. I think uh, people are talking that way. I just hope, uh, hope we're able to uh, effectively continue to do that. Well, I, I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to choose to, to end that that podcast this episode right there. I don't know that we could uh, say anything better about the future. That's both optimistic and cautious. Um, uh, it's good. I know, it's hard to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're so we're so used to not being. I know, right? <laughs> optimistic. It's, it's intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know that I know you're busy. Uh, all the center staff are busy. Um, but this, this has been a really great, it's always a great conversation to, to talk with you and to learn from you, um, and to get your perspective, which is, is, is definitely, I think, uh, for most of the people I, I work with a North star when it comes to independent living and, and the philosophy, of it and the importance of it. So I, I just really appreciate you taking the time, particularly for the first episode of this, this podcast series, independent Idaho, um, sponsored by, uh, by link Southwest Idaho center for independent living. And if our listeners, viewers want to, um, uh, learn more about Mark's center, uh, in the center, uh, up in North Idaho, you can go to www.dacdisabilityactioncenternwnorthwest.org, dacnw.org. Um, I know you've got offices in Lewiston, Post Falls, Moscow, Spokane, um, and you've got such a fantastic group of folks up there doing really important, really impactful work, um, so we'll we'll just leave it there. And I know this won't be the last time that 
I've got the privilege of, of talking with you on this podcast, um, but I, I really am honored and appreciative of you taking time to be the first guest on on the podcast, Mark. Well, thank you, Jeremy. It's always a pleasure to talk to you as well. It's not like there's uh, any hard and fast rule to any of the things we do. It's uh, constantly thinking on our, our feet because uh, that's a human thing to do. So it's uh, no, it's great to be a part of it. I I, I feel so incredibly uh, lucky to uh, have been a part of a movement through through some really exciting developmental times, um, and just so value the people I've met over the years. Some of the people I mentioned earlier um, that you know people see is I've always kind of been on the periphery. Uh, those have been the movers and the shakers, and. Uh, uh, and just, you know, the Dana Gover, you mentioned you're going to be talking to uh, newer acquaintances such as yourself. I'm just uh, what a what an incredible opportunity. And again, it just kind of underscores that uh, there's uh, the most important thing that people do is connect. And uh, when you can connect doing something worthwhile and good for individuals and I think for communities, then it's it's pretty cool stuff. Well, that's great. And, and we'll end it here. Um, for those of you who have joined us, uh, this, uh, podcast, this episode will drop on Monday, September 12th, and then we will, uh, drop our next podcast two weeks later. And coming up, I'll be doing an interview with Kelly Buckland, who, uh, was the first uh, executive director of link as well as the first executive director of the state independent living council in Idaho. And he went on to be the executive director of the national council on, on independent living and, uh, is now a, uh, presidential appointee at the, uh, I think the federal transportation administration helping, uh, improve accessibility of commercial airliners and and trains so that's going to be a really interesting discussion and then we've got some other uh we've got tireless some other what's that tireless advocate incredible Kelly. incredible human being yeah absolutely yep. incredible and uh we've got a couple other folks lined up um right out of the gate and i just want to thank the listeners uh uh, for tuning in and we will catch all of you in two weeks. Stay independent, Idaho.